0: Thank you. I'm, I'm just so honored to be and share with you this morning, and especially to get to share with you my favorite thing, and that's my story. And um, this morning, I don't come to you as a, as a preacher. I come to you just as one of you who has a story that I just feel I'm compelled to tell and tell and keep telling as long as I live, really. A little over a month ago, Phil and I were having coffee with Jenny and Ryan, and we've come to just love Jenny and Ryan and kind of have adopted them as a couple more of our kids. They're the age of our children, and we just love their hearts, and I know you too, but we go to lots of different churches now, and we teach. We teach mostly on the family, and it is so rare. Do you know what a rare gift you have in Jenny and Ryan? in that they have the hearts of shepherds who love you, who who get up early to get here to make it. Uh, Jenny was making it all pretty this morning with some flowers that somebody from the church gave, because they just honestly love you and think about you. To get to hear them talk about you is just a great pleasure for me. So I hope you appreciate this kind of a rarity in this age to have a pastor and his wife who love you like that. Um, and when we were sitting outside and, you know, we're from the Northwest and it rains this time of year. Well, it rains most time of year. <laughs> and we were soaking in the sunshine at a coffee place in Willow Glen when Ryan asked if I would tell my story to the people of Awakening Church. And, you know, my first thought was, oh, no, I, I, can't, I, I can't do that. I don't do that. I'm not a preacher. But faster than I could spit out my no... I just sensed the spirit of God saying, no, die, don't do that. Say yes. These are your people too. And you are. You are my family. It's hard for us to comprehend that, but you really are. You're my people. And so as I started to be praying for you, as I walk through the woods near my house, and I was praying for the people of Awakening Church, and I know a few of you, the strangest thing began to happen. I just began to feel like I'm falling in love with you. I hardly know you, and yet I feel like the Father gave me a sense of of who you are, and I began to care about how you are doing deep down inside where no one sees. I feel like I'm your mom, so I come up here today kind of as mom. And so I'm here to tell you my story, to share really what God has done and what he is doing in the hope that you will see and you will hear how great our Father is, your Father and mine, and that what he has done for me, how he turned a really hard story into a really wonderful story of delight and awe and adventure, he wants to do that for you too. Psalm 107, verses 1 and 2 say, Let the redeemed of the Lord, that's us, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. And I'm one who's been redeemed by the hand of the foe. A few years ago, when I turned 15, I felt like I was pretty much finished with doing what I felt was the most important calling on my life, that of raising my four children to love and seek and go after God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. I sensed God urging me to do two more things. Not two more things before I die, not a bucket list, so much as a task list. Ephesians 2:10 tells us that we are God's workmanship, given specific tasks, specific assignments that you and I are assigned by God that if we don't do those tasks, they're not going to get done in the kingdom of heaven. And in John 9:4, I love when Jesus says all of us Each of us, you too, must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent me, because there's little time left before night falls and all work comes to an end. And I felt him leading me, pushing me out of my comfort zone to write my story, to write it for the next generation, for my children who are now grown in their 30s and 20s, and my children's children, for Jude and Moses and Sunday and Duke and Scarlett and Beatrice, for any and all who need to know that our Redeemer really honestly is alive and that he speaks and that he's changing us and rescuing us, that that we can hear him with confidence and that he's very much still alive and rescuing, that he isn't finished he didn't finish, he's not finished with you, he's not finished with me. And so I did, I wrote my story, about someday when I die, and my life gets summed up in just a few words on a tombstone, it's not going to, going to say, here lies Diane Comer, mother of John Mark, or Matthew, or Rebecca, or Elizabeth. It's not going to say wife to Phil, or grandma, they call me Amma, to Jude, and all my grandchildren. It's not going to say writer of a book I know exactly what words I want there. Diane Comer, she delighted in God, because that is my story. How God brought me to this place where my life is defined not by who I know or what I do or what I accomplish or the chores I check off my list, but by simply and honestly delighting in God. I want to tell you my story in the hope that you can find yours, too. Because you have a story, just like I do. It's a story of God coming near to you, making himself known, of enticing you and alluring you into intimacy, back into the intimacy with himself that we have been created for. Of leading you to a place where your name tag, your identity says, This one, he is all mine, not flawless absolutely, completely mine. So I'll tell you a little bit of the background of this story. I grew up in my early years in Europe as an American living overseas, and when we were living there back in the 70s, we kept hearing about this thing people were calling the Jesus movement back in the States, home in the States. And I didn't have any sort of background really in church except for the big stone cathedrals that are all over Europe. And one day, over there, I picked up the Stars and Stripes military newspaper, and right there on the top page, on the front page, top of the fold, was a picture of thousands of young people like myself with their hands raised, and they were worshiping Jesus. And I hungered one photo, sparked a hunger in my heart to know, who is this Jesus? I had no idea Who he was, was he part of God? I just didn't know who he was. And I actually prayed, God, will you show me who is Jesus? Can you imagine how he delighted to hear that prayer? Came back to America when I was in high school and we stumbled upon, quite by accident, a really great church. It's now called Venture Christian Church over there, Las Gatas, kind of Almaden. And back then it was Las Gatas Christian Church. And one by one, our family sat in these metal chairs, and one by one, we gave our lives to Jesus, and he changed us. I, as a teenager, watching my parents' lives turned around, we were changed radically. But somewhere in there, I adopted the thinking that if I would be a very, very good girl, and I'd do all the right things, and I'd be very disciplined, then God would look at me with favor, and he would bless me. I had my list of rules. I made them up all on my own of what a good Christian woman ought to look like. And I made sure that I could just check every single one of those off. And By bless, I thought that basically that meant everything would go really well for me. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I liked that. I signed my name on the dotted line for the wonderful life. And if it meant I had to restrict my life and kind of work hard at being good, that was a fair exchange, I thought. And it worked. God did bless me. He gave me this tall, handsome, godly husband. I mean, Phil was the catch of the church, and I got him. Right up until we were standing, having our vows, I kept thinking, oh, he's going to discover how bad I really am, and he's going to back out of this. And then God gave me one by one four beautiful and happy and healthy children. We had a lovely home by this time in Santa Cruz with a view of the Monterey Bay. I had everything I ever wanted. I had the life. And yet, I was restless. I wasn't satisfied. I was downright dissatisfied. I wasn't as happy with all these blessings as I thought I ought to be, as I thought I would be. That began to eat at me. Every morning I got up to do what I was supposed to do. I read my Bible. I'd get out my list of prayer cards to make sure I didn't forget anything, to make sure God wouldn't forget anything. And then I made my mental list of everything I was supposed to do so I could check it off, To be a good girl, so that God would bless me. And every morning, I woke up dreading my day. Why was I not content? Why didn't I feel fulfilled and satisfied? What was wrong with me? And I think some of you are asking that question right now. Some of you are waking up every morning, and you're dreading your day, and you're asking, why am I not happy? Why am I not satisfied? The preachers tell me I'm supposed to be. What's wrong with me? Along about that time, God brought into my life a couple of older women whose lives, just watching them, and, and I stared and copied them, made me yearn for more. There was Lori Kyes, who can glean more wisdom from the word of God than any person I've ever known. Her Bible's filled with notes everywhere that she refers to. And Muriel Cook, a beautiful, elegant woman, so filled with joy, genuine joy and delight in God. I wanted to be just like her. And I saw that these women were content, they were really happy, filled with joy, this sort of aura of beauty about them. And I wanted what they had. I wanted that kind of a glow, whatever it was that made them glow with happiness. Psalm 345 describes that kind of a person who looks to him and a radiant <sighs> What is that about? And then there was Kathy, a woman who sang in the choir. She wasn't pretty, not in the way that we think of beauty. She'd had a really hard life. She was in the middle of her hard life. Her husband was in prison, and her teenage son was just flirting with trouble. And every time that the choir would sing, back in the days of the choir, it would sing a song about the Savior or a redeemer, or about the cross, Kathy would begin to weep as she sang, and tears would flow down the crevices that lined her face, and she would turn beautiful. And I would stare at Kathy thinking, what is she crying about? I wanted that tenderness, and I knew I didn't have it. I tried everything to chase those feelings of discontent and that aggravation away, trying harder, it didn't work. Being more disciplined didn't work. Reading books about trying harder and being more disciplined didn't help at all. I didn't dare tell anybody the truth at me. It just kept it all inside, and sometimes I blamed others. It was Phil's fault, for sure. He was too busy. Maybe it was my kid's fault. Maybe I had too many kids. Maybe it was this fixer-upper house that we lived in that we didn't have enough money to really fix up. And so I began to pray. I didn't know what else to do. I asked God to do whatever he needed to do to make me deep down satisfied like these women that I, that I had grown to admire and to love and to bring me close to him in a way that I could feel him. I asked God to give me that kind of intimacy that made them so tender, that made Kathy weep at the cross. Now, I want to pause right here. I do not believe that God heard my prayers and just said, oh, okay, all right. I'll just zap Diane with something really hard. So she stops trying so hard to be so good and so perfect all the time. I'll mess her life up a little bit. So she gets this whole grace thing. We have all heard it said, be careful what you pray for. I want to say no, no. Don't ever be careful what you pray for. He's your father. He gives you only the best of gifts. And he loves you. He values you. He even likes you. He wants to be with you. Sometimes I don't even really want to be with me. And he always does. Now, I don't believe that God heard my prayer and thought, "Mm, okay, I'm going to make this one lose her hearing so that she can come close to me. But I do believe that God knew beforehand what kind of disruption the fall had caused, not only in our souls, but in our bodies as well. That for me, that corruption that happened at the fall, when sin entered the garden, entered our lives, invaded our lives, would mean an autoimmune rarity that would cause my healing to fail. So back to my story. I just had my third child, and I was in that glow that mothers have when their baby is first born and you're introduced to this actual person who's alive and my ears seemed a little bit plugged. My oldest son was five, Becca was two and a half and I had this baby and my ears just kind of felt irritatingly plugged, sort of muffled like they were full of cotton. I thought maybe I had water on the ear or something so I made an appointment with an ear specialist so that he would give me some sort of a pill to just unmuffle my ears and get on with my life. I'd just get in there, get it, pick up a quick prescription, and go home. But I was there for hours, listening to pings and whistles and long silences while the audiologist was marking on a chart. And the doctor, finally, at the end of all that, summoned me into his office. Now, I had never been into an actual doctor's office, you know, with the desk and the leather chairs and all these, you know, plaques on the wall telling me that he must be really great at what he's doing. And the doctor sat behind his desk with my file on the front of him, and he wouldn't look at me. He just kept his head down, staring at his papers, completely detached. And after a long pause, he told me that I had a major hearing loss that he could do nothing about it, that I ought to get hearing aids right away, and by the way, it's probably going to get worse and eventually fail altogether. All I heard in that moment was those dreadful words, hearing aids. No way was anybody going to get me to wear hearing aids. My grandfather wore hearing aids. No way. I was 26 years old. I went home. And I cried in Phil's arms, and then I did what I'd always done. When any hard things came into my life, I stuffed it deep down inside and plastered a fake Christian woman's smile on my face. And some of you do the very same thing, and I know it, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work, not for long. It's difficult to describe to another person what it is like to lose one's hearing. Um, First, it was just the little things. I couldn't hear the telephone ring if I was in another part of a house. Back then we had all these phones that hung on walls, you know. <laughs> there was a cord, and you could only walk as long as your cord, but they're vintage now. Actually, see them for sale in antique shops. Crazy. When I finally did hear it ring, I could hardly ever tell who it was on the other line of side of the phone because all voices began. To, same, to sound exactly the same to me. Being hearing impaired involves a lot of frustration, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of anger. The deaf world is an angry, angry world. It's so frustrating to want to talk to someone, to see somebody, you think, I would love to be part of that conversation, but to know that there's no way you're going to understand what is being said. Or to be afraid to enter into a conversation that I simply don't have much of a chance of of being able to carry through. Um, Or to see that dread look on a person's face when you answered and you obviously answered a question that wasn't asked and you're so mixed up and you're confused. You know you said the wrong thing. The worst feeling. But it was at home. For me, that the pain was the greatest. When my baby Elizabeth cried in the night, and I could not hear her. When my Becca, who was the cutest little toddler you ever saw, with dimples on her her elbows and in her fingers, and she'd wrap her arms around me, and she would whisper sweet secrets to her mom, and I never heard, I couldn't hear. When my son, John Mark, my sweet, introverted son, chattered all the way home in the car from camp, Ham- camp Hammer, not far from here, tried to tell me all that had happened on his week away at camp, and I could not have any idea what he was talking about or what he was saying. Oh, the pain. Nothing else really matters. I wanted to hear what my people had to say. I wanted to be involved in their lives. I wanted to know their hearts. I'd envisioned my children or myself sitting on the edge of the bed, of my children's beds, and just telling me everything in their hearts. I wanted to carry my children's burdens and to share their joys, but would they still talk to me? Would anybody? How could they? what about Phil? Would he grow distant? Would I lose him? Phil is one of those people who thinks out loud, an external processor, and ironically, his biggest need is for me to listen. How would I be a wife? How can I be a mother? How can I be who I'm supposed to be and not here? I was terrified of a life without sound, and I began to sink into a deep, dark depression I'd never experienced depression before, oh, a little no now and then like everybody. But this was just darkness. I couldn't pull out of it. All my coping mechanism failed me. I couldn't cheer up. I was overwhelmed with fear and with self-pity and with anger, but more than anything else, self-pity. My God had turned his back on me. How could he do this to me? I had no doubt that God could heal me. After all, he made these errors. so why wouldn't he? I'd been such a good girl. I tried so hard. I was actually, at 26 years old, exhausted from trying so hard to be who I thought I was supposed to be. And I could feel my world was slipping away from me, and it was his fault. It was all his fault. Where was the blessing that he had promised me, this wonderful life that I thought I signed up for? Let me warn you, for one who has been there, just how terribly dangerous self-pity really is. You don't want to go there. It's like digging yourself into a pit, and you cannot for the life of you claw out of it. And it's a tool that the enemy is using actively today in some of your lives today. It's a tool that he's used effectively for thousands of years to defeat us, to turn us away from God. Phil, about this time, began to grow really alarmed. He tried so hard to cheer me up. Come on, die. You're not dying or anything. What's a little hearing anyway? Okay, maybe that didn't go over so well when he said it. There might have been a few words. I just wrapped myself in a cloak of self-pity and shut everyone out. I shudder to think and to admit to you now that I hated God. Me, the perfect little pastor's wife who followed all the rules, I read my Bible and boiled with fury reading my anger into the stories. God is mean. God is capricious. What is he? He doesn't seem to care. He says he cares, and he doesn't. I went to church, and inside, where no one could see, I railed against him, crying tears in worship, tears of pure fury and anger. I said, this like a little child, having an out-of-control temper tantrum. You see them in these grocery stores, that was me spewing anger at God, spewing all my hatred on him. And I hear people say all the time, it's okay to be angry at God. And there's a part of me that really wants to agree because I faked it for so long. And I know now how God values truth and authenticity. But I'm not sure, so sure that it's actually really okay to be angry with God. I think I was in a very dangerous place back then teetering on the brink of a rebellion and all the awful ugliness that comes in the wake of that. All those irrevocable choices we make in the midst of that kind of seething, simmering anger. But does he ever turn his back on us? No. Does he ever throw up his mighty hands in disgust and say, oh my gosh, I give this girl, I let this girl have one hard thing happen and she turns on me? No. No. He never says, that's enough, I'm done with you. Never. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. You and I cannot do anything to make him reject us. No sin is so bad, no thought is so wicked, no person is ever so vile as to turn God away. Are you with me? Can anyone please say Amen. And hallelujah to that. There's no one else that you can say that of. This Savior who died for us did not die for us when we were all dressed up for church. He hung there seeing the real me, not the me that I pretend to be. He loved the whole package just as I am. And every once in a while, given the right circumstances and the right pressures, we get a terrifying glimpse of who we really are apart from him. Well, one Sunday after church, at Phil's not very subtle urging, he's kind of gently pushing me, I ask the elders of our church to pray for me for healing from this awful thing, to make it go away. James 5, 14 says, "If says, is, is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them And anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. These men prayed in the little cinder block room on plastic chairs over the hill at Santa Cruz Bible Church, where we were on staff. They prayed like I've never heard anybody pray before. They prayed that God would heal me. They believed that he could. They believed that he would. They wept. They laughed in the middle of the time of prayer at God's goodness. And as they prayed, I just sat there silent, weeping, tears, just wetting my blouse with my tears. And as they prayed, something happened. I'll never have the words really to describe it fully, and you have to know I'm no wild, raging sensationalist. Steady Eddie is my middle name. But I felt, I saw, it looked as though the sun had broken out from behind a thick black cloud. First Timothy six, 16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. And I think, no, I don't think I know. He let me see a glimpse of that light like the sun streaming through the clouds you know on those stormy days and you see it just in, in intensity i saw and i heard two words simple words i never really even knew that god would speak to me let alone know with absolute clarity that he was speaking two words it's okay diane die ah, it's okay It's okay, over and over again, not reassuring sweet like my mama would say, but stern like my father when he would grab my hand and pull me to safety. Diane, it's okay. And I knew in the moment with unquestionable knowing that he had said no to my healing, that he had a gift for me in this affliction, a treasure. Really, something I needed, something I wanted more than I wanted to hear. that he would make it OK that it was my job to trust him. And somehow, in a, some way, in a way I will never understand, didn't follow 10 steps to do it right, it was OK. in a moment, in an instant, supernaturally. God picked me up out of the pit of anger and fear and self-pity that I dug myself into, and he set my feet on solid rock. And I will never be the same. He healed me, not my ears, me. Now I know why he died for me. I know. Now I understand why Kathy cried at the cross. I got a glimpse of the real me, who I really am. I know who I am apart from my Savior. I am not, I will never be a good girl. Now I cling to him like I never did before because I know I need him just to take my next breath. I love Deuteronomy 13.4 that says, serve only the Lord your God, fear him alone, obey his commandments, listen to his voice and cling to him. Got up the next morning, and my whole world was different. Nothing changed, but everything had changed. I opened my Bible, and for the very first time, it wasn't about discipline at all. It wasn't about following the rules because I should and I'm supposed to. It was honestly, it wasn't about being a good Christian woman anymore. God spoke to me in his word. Words jumped off the page. Comfort. Friendship. Deep knowing inside. Rest. Some correction. A kind of correction that made me feel so loved. It made me feel like a relief of coming clean, of being set free. Wisdom to know how to do life this way. To do a life that isn't easy. Assurance that he's with me, that he's present that I, that we actually live in his presence. And the truest truth is he's given me an incredible gift with this loss of hearing. I actually ended up going completely deaf. I am completely deaf. Now, though, instead of dreading my days, I cannot wait to get up in the morning. I make my pot of tea, and I turn the heater on in my little cabin that's in the back of our uh, separate from our house, and I curl up in a big white chair, and I get out my Bible and maybe a couple of different versions because I love words and I love the way different people put things. And I listen, and His voice is clear always. His presence I feel always. And really, as it became harder and harder for me to hear you, to hear my family, to hear my children the easier it has become to hear the voice of my Savior. It's nothing really mystical, never prophetic for me, just everyday stuff that gives me help and insight and wisdom when I need it and conviction, lots of that, and those gentle corrections that feel like real love, like feel like true love. And more recently, he seems to be telling me who to pray for and sometimes even how to pray, as if his whispers in my ear and then my praying specifically for my people, my friends, women who leave comments on my blog, as if it matters, as if what matters to me actually matters to him, not just because I read it in a book, but because I sense it and I know it. God has become my friend. I was telling my story to a friend once, years ago, and she shocked me by saying, you are so lucky, Diane. I thought, a deaf woman? Lucky? She's right. I am so lucky. The very next morning after the elders prayed, God spoke to me through his word at Psalm 40, and it's become my song. And finding so many other people feel like this is their song, it was David's song, I waited patiently. That word is actually sometimes better translated intently. I waited intently for the Lord, and he inclined to to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm, and he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. And then on in verse 6, My ears thou hast opened, he has. He has opened my ears to hear him, to to know him in a way I never could have before when I was trying so hard to be so good and so perfect. But my story doesn't end there. My hearing continued to fail over the next few years. I wore the biggest, ugliest hearing aids that they make. And I don't know why somebody has not at least tried to make them look a little better, this looked just like my grandfather's hearing aids. And my world became smaller and smaller, As sound's faded, and my ability to respond to people diminished. It was hard, so hard to function in a world without being able to understand. It's called an invisible handicap because nobody knows looking at me that I haven't a clue what they're saying to hear a noise and not know what it meant. I'm not going to pretend that I like that even now. There is a grieving that never really goes away. I lost something that God designed for me to have. And now, but now in my grieving, he grieves with me in a sweet kind of comfort only God can give. A few years ago, though, because I had lost so much of my hearing, I qualified to have what's called a cochlear implant, and it's a surgery only for those who lo- completely lose their hearing in both ears. When hearing aids don't work anymore and no sound at all is able to penetrate the silence, it's essentially a little computer that is kind of um, mimics... A, it's a 21-channel soundboard, basically, in a little tiny chip that is implanted down... Um, right up against the cochlear nerve, which makes sound go from mechanical sounds that we all hear into an electrical kind of a pulse that then the eighth bundle of nerves is is how we hear our brain. We actually hear from our brain more than our ears. And voila, I have sound. Um, But with this thing on, I have entered the world of hearing. Once again, it's not perfect. It's a computer. Hearing is hard work for me. I have to focus and concentrate. Sometimes talking to me can be just a little bit embarrassing for the person listening or talking with me because if I can't hear, I kind of tend to scoot closer and closer and closer, and I'm staring at the person's face, a little intense for some people. I'll notice people kind of going like this. So just in case you talk to me afterwards... I'm supposed to take this thing off. There's an external and an internal part, and the external attaches to my skull with a magnet. I'm supposed to take it off um, every day for periods of time just because it's so much work still. Sometimes, though, that is so amazingly convenient. <laughs> <sighs> One thing I miss, I really miss, that when I go home to be with them, I'm going to enjoy is the music that you all got to hear this morning? I can't hear it. No, none of the technicians have yet been able to make this cochlear make music go clear again. So I know, I know I'm hearing something different than you're hearing, because when I'm listening to the band, I'm thinking. Oh, my gosh, that sounds awful. What is all that racket? But you're all smiling, and so I think, okay, they know something that I don't. But I sing right along in my little aisle to make sure that the sound booth they know do definitely put take, turn my microphone off in the worship because I apparently sing like two notes over and over and over again. I just think I sound great, (laughs) but nobody else seems to, and I sit in the same section at church all the time, and everybody knows around me that I just need to sing loud, because I'm so proud of my voice, and that they just have to be okay about that, so I I sing in my monotone, and I worship, because the truth, truth is that I thank him every single day for this gift of hearing that came to me in the suffering of not hearing because I now have an intimacy, a connection with my Savior given to me I my weakness that I never had in my strength. It's his gift to me, and I know that now. So much so that one time, many years ago, we were camping, and while everybody was, out, was sleeping, I got up and I made my way to a bench where I, that I'd seen the day before, and I sat in front of the lake, and I felt God whisper to me, die do you want it back? And I froze. Do I want it back? Do I want my hearing back? Do I? And my answer was, no, I don't want it back. Not if I would lose what you have given me in this. No, I don't want it back. I want to wait until I see you, then I'll have it back. This morning, I want to leave with you really quickly because time is drawing near with three thoughts that apply to all of us. Some of you are listening to my story right now and you are in the middle of what novelists call the bleakest moment, your bleakest moment. May I just remind you that God is with you in your mess? He's there. You may not feel him yet, but he's with you. I didn't know that, not really. And I thought that he'd gone away from me, that he'd abandoned me. A lot of us get stuck there. We write it on our name tag. We define ourselves by our bleakest moment. But it's not who you are. It's just part of your story. It's hard. A part that God can use to get you to the place where you can hear him. Where you can be made into a woman of God or man of God who delights in God. And then there's a word translated here in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, when God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. We call it the great Shema. It actually doesn't just mean to listen. It means to listen with the intent to obey. We're not listening for like tweet, nice little tweeties, tweetable quotes. We are listening so that we can neither are we listening so that we can tell others what God wants them to do. We are listening with the intent to obey. What do you have for me? And may I caution you as one who's hard of hearing, who's deaf, to listen in humility to God, lest we think we hear what we want to hear, or we mishear God. I do it all the time. I don't understand what someone said, and I'm sure absolutely sure I heard right. And I'll argue about it as if a deaf woman would argue about whether she should hear something right. So I may just caution you to be humble in your listening to God and to be patient. Listening is a skill. Learning to listen to God is a skill. He invites us in, but it takes a lifetime, really, to be able to hear him. We are going to be leaning in and learning to listen until we go into his presence, and then we're going to hear him loud and clear. And one last thought is that you have a story to tell, and your story is a story this world needs to hear. Someone needs to hear. Now, Jess, I can have the courage to tell my story. So can you. It's the most important thing that you have to offer Jesus to offer the world around you, to offer people you love is your story. Just as I finish up, I can't help but wonder what might happen if every one of us right here, right now, decided that we really actually wanted to hear Jesus speak to us, that we want to hear God, that we want to be listeners. What would happen if we all decided to get up say an hour earlier than we need to, not to check something off our list that I need to finish my Bible reading chart, but to listen. What if we got everything up, set up the night before so we wouldn't miss it? What if he used that entire hour to enter into this gift, this invitation of God for every one of us to listen to him? We'd open our Bibles, and we'd read his words, and we'd stop, and we'd listen. Are you saying something, Lord? Am I missing something? We pray about what worries us, and we stop, and we listen, and we, and we lean in to try what the Spirit is saying to us. I tell you what I believe would happen. We would set the world on fire. You would set your world on fire. On fire because God would be telling us and we would be hearing what He wants us to do, what He wants, who He wants us to be, what He wants us to say, what He wants us not to say. And what if we would happen if we came to Him and just said, Here I am, Lord. All yours, I'm just listening. Will you speak to me? Listening with the intent to obey. Listening. To, to what you want to write in my story, how you want to use my story. In Jeremiah 30, verse 21, God asks a question, and I think of this question all the time like he's asking me all the time. He says this, who is he who would devote himself to be close to me? And I just want to raise my hand and say, me, me. Me, I want to be one who devotes herself to be close to him. We will devote ourselves to be close to you. Would you just stand and would you just pray with me right now? And if you are one who wants to just devote herself, devote himself to be close to God, will you tell him that right now? Will you just... maybe not figuratively, maybe just figuratively, just raise your hand to him and say, yes, I want to be such a one. Father, Jesus, I thank you for being my redeemer, for taking my brokenness, my rebellion, my, my anger, my hatred towards you and turning it into your loved gift for me turning my weakness into your strength. Father, I just thank you for this family of people right now, the people of Awakening Church. Lord, I just ask that you would be speaking into their hearts, those who are in their bleakest moment. I pray that they would hold on to hope, that you would give them hope today. For those who are just feeling kind of away from you and vanilla kind of to you and just coming and doing their thing or trying so hard to be good that they're exhausted. Pray that you would show yourself real to them, that you would speak and they would hear. Wherever each one is in their story, whether it's the beginning or they're stuck in the middle or they've come out triumphantly, Lord, I pray that they will remember what they're really after, knowing you intimately not even doing for you so much as knowing you, and out of that knowing, naturally doing what, wanting to do what you've called us to do. Pray that they will remember that hearing you is the most important reason to open their Bibles, to listen to the teaching, to worship. Pray that your personal words to them will bring deep satisfaction that even having the life never brings and that they would found what David find what David found after all of his fa- failure and he said in the 23rd psalm surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord in your presence forever amen